On Basilisk Station, Honor Harrington, Volume 1, by David Weber, read by Madeline Bazard. This book contains 422 pages on 10 sides. If you would like to skip over any remaining announcements or introductory material, place your cassette player in fast-forward until a beep is heard. Stop at that point to hear the beginning of the book. Library of Congress Annotation Begins a series chronicling the career of spaceship naval officer Honor Harrington, accompanied by her six-legged telepathic cat. Having antagonized her male superiors, Honor is exiled to the galactic outpost Basilisk Station, from where she proves her mettle and military prowess. Some Strong Language For Senior High and Older Readers 1993 From the Book Jacket Commander Honor Harrington has enemies, and she's about to make more of them. Honor in Trouble Having made him look a fool... She's been exiled to Basilisk Station in disgrace and set up for ruin by a superior who hates her. Her demoralized crew blames her for their ship's humiliating posting to an out-of-the-way picket station. The aborigines of the system's only habitable planet are smoking homicide-inducing hallucinogens. Parliament isn't sure it wants to keep the place. The major local industry is smuggling. The merchant cartels want her head. The star-conquering so-called Republic of Haven is up to something, and Honor Harrington has a single overage light cruiser with an armament that doesn't work to police the entire star system. But the people out to get her have made one mistake. They've made her mad. Other books by David Weber. Honor Harrington novels. The Honor of the Queen. The Short Victorious War, Field of Dishonor, Flag in Exile, Honor Among Enemies, In Enemy Hands, Echoes of Honor. Edited by David Weber, More Than Honor, Worlds of Honor, Mutineer's Moon, The Armageddon Inheritance, Heirs of Empire, Path of the Fury, Oath of Swords, The War God's Own. The Apocalypse Troll With Steve White Insurrection Crusade In Death Ground To C.S. Forrester With thanks for hours of enjoyment Years of inspiration And a lifetime of admiration Reader's Note The map found in the print edition Is not included in this recording End of Note Prologue. The ticking of the conference room's antique clock was deafening as the hereditary president of the People's Republic of Haven stared at his military cabinet. The secretary of the economy looked away uncomfortably, but the secretary of war and her uniformed subordinates were almost defiant. Are you serious? President Harris demanded. I'm afraid so, Secretary Frankel said unhappily. He shuffled through his memo chips and made himself meet the President's eyes. The last three quarters all confirm the projections, Sid. He glowered sideways at his military colleague. It's the naval budget. We can't keep adding ships this way without... 
If we don't keep adding them, Elaine Dumarista broke in sharply, the wheels come off. We're riding a neo-tiger, Mr. President. At least a third of the occupied planets still have crackpot liberation groups. And even if they didn't, everyone on our borders is arming to the teeth. It's only a matter of time until one of them jumps us. I think you're overreacting, Elaine, Ronald Berggren put in. The Secretary for Foreign Affairs rubbed his pencil-thin mustache and frowned at her. Certainly they're arming. I would be too in their place. But none of them are strong enough to take us on. Perhaps not just now, Admiral Parnell said bleakly. But if we get tied down elsewhere, or any large-scale revolt breaks out, some of them are going to be tempted into trying a smash-and-grab. That's why we need more ships. And, with all due respect to Mr. Frankel, the CNO added, not sounding particularly respectful, it isn't the fleet budget that's breaking the bank. It's the increases in the basic living stipend. We've got to tell the dolists that any trough has a bottom and get them to stop swilling long enough to get our feet back under us. If we could just get those useless drones off our backs, even for a few years... Oh, that's a wonderful idea, Frankel snarled. Those BLS increases are all that's keeping the mob in check. They supported the wars to support their standard of living. And if we don't, that's enough. President Harris slammed his hand down on the table and glared at them all in the shocked silence. He let the stillness linger a moment, then leaned back and sighed. We're not going to achieve anything by calling names and pointing fingers, he said more mildly. Let's face it, the Ducazine plan hasn't proved the answer we thought it would. I have to disagree, Mr. President, Dumarest said. The basic plan remains sound, and it's not as if we have any other choice now. We simply fail to make sufficient allowance for the expenses involved. And for the revenues it would generate, Frankel added in a gloomy tone. There's a limit to how hard we can squeeze the planetary economies. But without more income, we can't maintain our BLS expenditures and produce a military powerful enough to hold what we've got. How much time do we have? Harris asked. I can't say for certain. I can paper over the cracks for a while, maybe even maintain a facade of affluence by robbing Peter to pay Paul... But unless the spending curves change radically, or we secure a major new source of revenue, we're living on borrowed time, and it's only going to get worse. He smiled without humor. It's a pity most of the systems we've acquired weren't in much better economic shape than we were. And you're certain we can't reduce fleet expenditures, Elaine? Not without running very grave risks, Mr. President. Admiral Parnell is perfectly correct about how our neighbors will react if we waver. It was her turn to smile grimly. I suppose we've taught them too well. Maybe we have, Parnell said. But there's an answer to that. Eyes turned to him, and he shrugged. Knock them off now. If we take out the remaining military powers on our frontiers, we can probably cut back to something more like a peacekeeping posture of our own. Jesus, Admiral, Berggren snorted. First you tell us we can't hold what we've got without spending ourselves into exhaustion, and now you want to kick off a whole new series of wars? Talk about the mysteries of the military mind. 
Hold on a minute, Ron, Harris murmured. He cocked his head at the Admiral. Could you pull it off, Amos? I believe so, Parnell replied more cautiously. The problem would be timing. He touched a button and a hollow map glowed to life above the table. The swollen sphere of the People's Republic crowded its northeastern quadrant, and he gestured at a rash of amber and red star systems to the south and west. There are no multi-system powers closer than the Anderman Empire, he pointed out. Most of the single-system governments are strictly small change. We could blow out any one of them with a single task force, despite their armament programs. What makes them dangerous is the probability that they'll get organized as a unit if we give them time. Harris nodded thoughtfully, but reached out and touched one of the beads of light that glowed a dangerous blood red. And Manticore, he asked. That's the Joker in the deck, Parnell agreed. They're big enough to give us a fight, assuming they've got the guts for it. So why not avoid them, or at least leave them for last, Bergren asked. Their domestic parties are badly divided over what to do about us. Couldn't we chop up the other small fry first? We'd be in worse shape if we did, Frankel objected. He touched a button of his own, and two-thirds of the amber lights on Parnell's map turned a sickly gray-green. Each of those systems is almost as far in the hole economically as we are, he pointed out. They'll actually cost us money to take over, and the others are barely break-even propositions. The systems we really need are further south, down towards the Erewhon Junction, or over in the Silesian Confederacy to the west. Then why not grab them straight off, Harris asked. Because Erewhon has league membership, Mr. President, Dumarest replied, and going south might convince the league we're threatening its territory. That could be, uh, a bad idea. Heads nodded around the table. The Solarian League had the wealthiest, most powerful economy in the known galaxy, but its foreign and military policies were the product of so many compromises that they virtually did not exist and no one in this room wanted to irritate the sleeping giant into evolving ones that did. So we can't go south, Dumerist went on. But going west, instead, brings us right back to Manticore. Why? Frankel asked. We could take Silesia without ever coming within a hundred light years of Manticore. Just cut across above them and leave them alone. Oh? Parnell challenged. And what about the Manticore wormhole junction? Its basilisk terminus would be right in our path. We'd almost have to take it, just to protect our flank. And even if we didn't, the Royal Manticoran Navy would see the implications once we started expanding around their northern frontier. They'd have no choice but to try to stop us. We couldn't cut a deal with them, Frankel asked Berggren, and the Foreign Secretary shrugged. The Manticoran Liberal Party can't find its ass with both hands where foreign policy is concerned. And the progressives would probably dicker, but they aren't in control. The centrists and crown loyalists are. They hate our guts. And Elizabeth III hates us even more than they do. Even if the liberals and progressives could turn the government out, the crown would never negotiate with us. Hmm. Frankel plucked at his lip, then sighed. Too bad. Because there's another point. We're in bad enough shape for foreign exchange, and three-quarters of our foreign trade moves through the Manticore Junction. 
if they close it against us, it'll add months to transit times and costs. Tell me about it, Parnell said sourly. That damn junction also gives their navy an avenue right into the middle of the Republic through the Trevor Star Terminus. But if we knock them out, then we'd hold the junction, Dumerist murmured. Think what that would do for our economy. Frankel looked up, eyes glowing with sudden avarice, for the junction gave the Kingdom of Manticore a gross system product, 78% that of the soul system itself. Harris noted his expression and gave a small, ugly smile. All right, let's look at it. We're in trouble, and we know it. We have to keep expanding. Manticore is in the way, and taking it would give our economy a hefty shot in the arm. The problem is, what we do about it. Manticore or not, Parnell said thoughtfully. We have to pinch out these problem spots to the southwest. He gestured at the systems Frankel had dyed gray-green. It'd be a worthwhile preliminary to position us against Manticore anyway. But if we can do it, the smart move would be to take out Manticore first and then deal with the small fry. Agreed, Harris nodded. Any ideas on how we might do that? Let me get with my staff, Mr. President. I'm not sure yet, but the junction could be a two-edged sword if we handle it right. The Admiral's voice trailed off. Then he shook himself. Let me get with my staff, he repeated, especially with naval intelligence. I've got an idea, but I need to work on it. He cocked his head. I can probably have a report, one way or the other, for you in about a month. Will that be acceptable? Entirely, Admiral, Harris said, and adjourned the meeting. Chapter One the fluffy ball of fur in Honor Harrington's lap stirred and put forth a round, prick-eared head as the steady pulse of the shuttle's thrusters died. A delicate mouth of needle-sharp fangs yawned, and then the tree-cat turned its head to regard her with wide, grass-green eyes. Bleak? it asked, and Honor chuckled softly. Bleak yourself, she said, rubbing the ridge of its muzzle. The green eyes blinked, and four of the tree cat's six limbs reached out to grip her wrist in feather-gentle hand paws. She chuckled again, pulling back to initiate a playful tussle, and the tree cat uncoiled to its full sixty-five centimeters, discounting its tail, and buried its true feet in her midriff with a deep buzzing hum of its purr. The hand paws tightened their grip, but the murderous claws a full centimeter of curved, knife-sharp ivory, were sheathed. Honor had once seen similar claws used to rip apart the face of a human foolish enough to threaten the tree-cat's companion. But she felt no concern. Except in self-defense, or Honor's defense, Nimitz would no more hurt a human being than turn vegetarian. And tree-cats never made mistakes in that respect. She extricated herself from Nimitz's grasp and lifted the long, sinuous creature to her shoulder, a move he greeted with even more enthusiastic purrs. Nimitz was an old hand at space travel and understood shoulders were out of bounds aboard small craft under power, but he also knew tree cats belonged on their companions' shoulders. 
That was where they'd ridden since the first cat adopted its first human five Terran centuries before. And Nimitz was a traditionalist. A fat furry jaw pressed against the top of her head as Nimitz sank its four lower sets of claws into the specially padded shoulder of her uniform tunic. Despite his long, narrow body, he was a hefty weight, almost nine kilos, even under the shuttle's single gravity. But Honor was used to it, and Nimitz had learned to move his center of balance in from the point of her shoulder. Now he clung effortlessly to his perch while she collected her briefcase from the empty seat beside her. Honor was the half-filled shuttle's senior passenger, which had given her the seat just inside the hatch. It was a practical as well as a courteous tradition, since the senior officer was always last aboard and first to exit. The shuttle quivered gently as its tractors reached out to the 70-kilometer bulk of Her Majesty's space station, Hephaestus, the Royal Manticoran Navy's premier shipyard, and Nimitz sighed his relief into Honor's short-cropped mass of feathery dark-brown hair. She smothered another grin and rose from her bucket seat to twitch her tunic straight. The shoulder scene had dipped under Nimitz's weight, and it took her a moment to get the red-and-gold navy shoulder flash with its roaring lion-headed bat-winged manticore, spiked tail poised to strike, back where it belonged. Then she plucked the beret from under her left epaulette. It was the special beret, the white one she'd bought when they gave her hawkwing, and she chivied Nimitz's jaw gently aside and settled it on her head. The tree cat put up with her until she had it adjusted just so then shoved his chin back into its soft warmth, and she felt her face crease in a huge grin as she turned to the hatch. That grin was a violation of her normally severe professional expression, but she was entitled. Indeed, she felt more than mildly virtuous for holding herself to a grin when what she really wanted to do was spin on her toes, fling her arms wide, and carol her delight to her no-doubt-shocked fellow passengers. But she was almost twenty-four years old, over forty Terran standard years, and it would never, never have done for a commander of the Royal Manticoran Navy to be so undignified, even if she was about to assume command of her first cruiser. She smothered another chuckle, luxuriating in the unusual sense of complete and simple joy, and pressed a hand to the front of her tunic. The folded sheaf of archaic paper crackled at her touch a curiously sensual, exciting sound, and she closed her eyes to savor it even as she savored the moment she'd worked so hard to reach. Fifteen years, twenty-five T-years, since that first exciting, terrifying day on the Saganami campus. Two and a half years of academy classes and running till she dropped. Four years working her way without patronage or court interest from ensign to lieutenant. Eleven months as sailing master aboard the frigate Osprey, and then her first command, a dinky little intrasystem LAC. It had massed barely 10,000 tons, with only a hull number and not even the dignity of a name. But God, how she loved that tiny ship. Then more time as executive officer, a turn as tactical officer on a massive super dreadnought. And then, finally, the coveted commanding officer's course after eleven grueling years. She'd thought she'd died and gone to heaven when they gave her Hawkwing, for the middle-aged destroyer had been her very first hyper-capable command, and the thirty-three months she'd spent in command had been pure, unalloyed joy. 
capped by the coveted Fleet E Award for tactics in last year's war games. But this... The deck shuddered beneath her feet, and the light above the hatch blinked amber as the shuttle settled into Hephaestus's docking buffers, then burned a steady green as pressure equalized in the boarding tube. The panel slid aside, and Honor stepped briskly through it. The shipyard tech manning the hatch at the far end of the tube saw the white beret of a starship's captain and the three gold stripes of a full commander on a space black sleeve and came to attention. But his snappy response was flawed by a tiny hesitation as he caught sight of Nimitz. He flushed and twitched his eyes away, but Honor was used to that reaction. The tree cats native to her home world of Sphinx were picky about which humans they adopted. Relatively few were seen off-world, but they refused to be parted from their humans, even if those humans chose space-going careers. And the Lords of Admiralty had caved in on that point almost 150 Manticorn years before. Cats rated a .83 on the sentient scale, slightly above Beowulf's gremlins or Old Earth's dolphins. And they were empaths. Even now, no one had the least idea how their empathic links worked but separating one from its chosen companion caused it intense pain, and it had been established early on that those favored by a cat were measurably more stable than those without. Besides, Crown Princess Adrienne had been adopted by a cat on a state visit to Sphinx. When Queen Adrienne of Manticore expressed her displeasure twelve years later at efforts to separate officers in her navy from their companions, the Admiralty found itself with no option but to grant a special exemption from its draconian, no-pets policy. Honor was glad of it, though she'd been afraid it would be impossible to find time to spend with Nimitz when she entered the Academy. She'd known going in that those forty-five endless months on Saganami Island were deliberately planned to leave even midshipmen without cats too few hours to do everything they had to do. But while academy instructors might suck their teeth and grumble when a plebe turned up with one of the rare cats, they recognized natural forces for which allowances must be made when they saw one. Besides, even the most domesticated cat retained the independence and indestructibility of his cousins in the wild, and Nimitz had seemed perfectly aware of the pressure she faced. All he needed was a little grooming, an occasional wrestling bout, a perch on her shoulder or lap while she poured over the book chips, and to sleep curled neatly up on her pillow. And he was happy. Not that he'd been above looking mournful and pitiful to extort tidbits and petting from any unfortunate who crossed his path. Even Chief MacDougall, the terror of the first four middies, had succumbed, carrying a suitable stash of the celery stalks the otherwise carnivorous tree cats craved, and sneaking them to Nimitz when he thought no one was looking. And, Honor reflected wryly, running Ms. Midshipman Harrington ragged to compensate for his weakness. Her thoughts had carried her through the arrival gate to the concourse, and she looked about until she found the color-coded guide strip to the personnel tubes. She followed it, unburdened by any baggage, for she had none. All her meager personal possessions had been freighted up this morning— whisked away by stewards at the advanced tactical course facility almost before she'd had time to pack. She frowned a bit at that thought while she punched up a tube capsule. 
All the scramble to get her here seemed out of character for a navy that preferred to do things in an orderly fashion. When she'd been given Hawkwing, she'd known two months in advance. This time, she'd been literally snatched out of the ATC graduation ceremonies and hustled off to Admiral Corvosier's office with no warning at all. The capsule arrived and she stepped into it, still frowning and rubbing gently at the tip of her nose. Nimitz roused to lift his chin from the top of her beret and nipped her ear with the scolding tug he saved for the unfortunately frequent moments when his companion worried. Honor clicked her teeth gently at him and reached up to scratch his chest. But she didn't stop worrying, and he sighed in exasperation. Now why, she wondered, was she so certain Courvoisier had deliberately bustled her out of his office and off to her new assignment? The Admiral was a bland-faced, cherubic little gnome of a man with a bent for creating demonic tack problems, and she'd known him for years. He'd been her fourth-form tactics instructor at the Academy, the one who'd recognized an inborn instinct and honed it into something she could command at will, not something that came and went. He'd spent hours working with her in private when other instructors worried about her basic math scores, and in a very real sense had saved her career before it had actually begun. Yet this time there'd been something almost evasive about him, she knew his congratulations and satisfied pride in her had been real, but she couldn't shake the impression that there'd been something else as well. Ostensibly, the rush was all because of the need to get her to Hephaestus to shepherd her new ship through its refit in time for the upcoming fleet exercise. Yet HMS Fearless was only a single light cruiser, when all was said. It seemed unlikely her absence would critically shift the balance in maneuvers planned to exercise the entire home fleet. No, something was definitely up, and she wished fervently that she'd had time for a full download before catching the shuttle. But at least all the rush had kept her from worrying herself into a swivet the way she had before taking Hawkwing over. And Lieutenant Commander McKeon, her new exec, had served on Fearless for almost two years, first as tactical officer and then as exec. He should be able to bring her up to speed on the refit, Courvoisier had been so oddly reluctant to discuss. She shrugged and punched her destination into the capsule's routing panel, then set down her briefcase and resigned herself as it flashed away down the countergrav tubeway. Despite a peak speed of well over 700 kilometers per hour, the capsule trip would take over 15 minutes, assuming she was lucky enough not to hit too many stops en route. The deck shivered gently underfoot, Few would have detected the tiny bobble, as one quadrant of Hephaestus's gravity generators handed the tube off to another. But Honor noticed it. Not consciously, perhaps, but that minute quiver was part of a world which had become more real to her than the deep blue skies and chill winds of her childhood. It was like her own heartbeat, one of the tiny, uncountable stimuli that told her, instantly and completely, what was happening around her. She watched the tube map display, shaking off thoughts of evasive admirals and other puzzles as her eyes tracked the blinking cursor of her capsule across it. Her hand rose to press the crispness of her orders once more, and she paused, almost surprised, as she looked away from the map and glimpsed her reflection in the capsule's polished wall. The face that gazed back should have looked different, reflecting the monumental change in her status, and it didn't 
It was still all sharply defined planes and angles dominated by a straight patrician nose, which, in her opinion, was the only remotely patrician thing about her, and devoid of the least trace of cosmetics. Honor had been told, once, that her face had a severe elegance. She didn't know about that, but the idea was certainly better than the dread. My, isn't she, um, healthy-looking? Not that healthy wasn't accurate, however depressing it might sound. She looked trim and fit in the RMN's black and gold, courtesy of her 1.35 gravity homeworld and a rigorous exercise regimen. And that, she thought, critically, was about the best she had to say about herself. Most of the Navy's female officers had chosen to adopt the current planet-side fashion of long hair, often elaborately dressed and arranged. But Honor had decided long ago that there was no point trying to make herself something she was not. Her hairstyle was practical, with no pretensions to glamour. It was clipped short to accommodate vac helmets and bouts of zero-g. And if its two-centimeter strands had a stubborn tendency to curl, it was neither blonde nor red, nor even black. Just a highly practical, completely unspectacular, dark brown. Her eyes were even darker, and she'd always thought their hint of an almond shape, inherited from her mother, made them look out of place in her strong-boned face, almost as if they'd been added as an afterthought. Their darkness made her pale complexion seem still paler, and her chin was too strong below her firm-lipped mouth. No, she decided once more, with a familiar shade of regret, it was a serviceable enough face, but there was no use pretending anyone would ever accuse it of radiant beauty. Darn it! She grinned again, feeling the bubble of delight pushing her worries aside, and her reflection grinned back. It made her look like an urchin gloating over a hidden bag of candy, and she took herself firmly to task for the remainder of the trip, concentrating on a new CO's responsibility to look cool and collected. But it was hard. She'd done well to make Commander so soon, even with the fleet's steady growth in the face of the Havenite threat, for the life-extending prolonged process made for long careers. The Navy was well supplied with senior officers, despite its expansion, and she came of yeoman stock, without the high-placed relatives or friends to nudge a naval career along. She'd known and accepted from the start that those with less competence but more exalted bloodlines would race past her. Well, they had. But she'd made it at last. A cruiser command, the dream of every officer worth her salt. So what if Fearless was twice her own age and little larger than a modern destroyer? She was still a cruiser, and cruisers were the Manticore Navy's eyes and ears its escorts and its raiders, the stuff of independent commands and opportunity and responsibility. That thought let her banish the grin at last, because if independent command was what every good officer craved, a captain all alone in the big dark had no one to appeal to, no one to take the credit or share the blame, for she was all alone, the final arbiter of her ship's fate, and the direct, personal representative of her queen and kingdom. And if she failed that trust, no power in the galaxy could save her. The personnel capsule ghosted to a stop, and she stepped out into the spacious gallery of the space dock, brown eyes hungry as they swept over her new command at last. 
H&S Fearless floated in her mooring beyond the tough, thick wall of armor-plast, lean and sleek even under the clutter of work platforms and access tubes, and the pendant number, CL-56, stood out against the white hull just behind her forward impeller nodes. Yard mechs swarmed over her in the dock's vacuum, supervised by vac-suited humans, but most of the work seemed to be concentrated on the broadside weapon bays. Honor stood motionless, watching through the armor-plast, feeling Nimitz rise straight and tall on her shoulder to join her perusal. And an eyebrow quirked. Admiral Corvosier had mentioned that Fearless was undergoing a major refit, but what was going on out there seemed a bit more major than she'd anticipated, which, coupled with his deliberate lack of detail, suggested something very special was in the wind— though Honor still couldn't imagine what could be important enough to turn the Admiral all mysterious on her. Nor did it matter very much to her as she drank up her new command, her new command, with avid eyes. She never knew exactly how long she stood there before she managed to tear her attention away at last and head for the crew tube. The two Marine sentries stood at parade rest, watching her approach, then snapped to attention as she reached them. She handed over her ID and watched approvingly as the senior man, a corporal, scrutinized it. They knew who she was, of course, unless the grapevine had died a sudden and unexpected death. Even if they hadn't, only one member of any ship's company was permitted the coveted white beret. But neither displayed the least awareness that their new mistress after God had arrived. The corporal handed back her ID folio with a salute and she returned it and walked past them into the access tube. She didn't look back, but the bulkhead mirror at the tube's first bend, intended to warn of oncoming traffic coming round the corner, let her watch the sentries as the corporal keyed his wrist calm to alert the command deck that the new captain was on her way. The scarlet band of a zero-G warning slashed the access tube deck before her, and she felt Nimitz's claws sink deeper into her shoulder pad as she stepped over it. She launched herself into the graceful swim of freefall as she passed out of Hephaestus's artificial gravity, and her pulse raced with quite unbecoming speed as she eeled down the passage. Another two minutes, she told herself. Only another two minutes. Lieutenant Commander Alistair McKeon twitched his tunic straight and smothered a flare of annoyance as he stood by the entry port. He'd been buried in the bowels of a vivisected fire control station when the message came in. There'd been no time to shower or change into a fresh uniform, and he felt the sweat staining his blouse under his hastily donned tunic. But at least Corporal Levine's message had given him enough warning to collect the side party. Formal courtesies weren't strictly required from a ship in yard hands, but McKeon would take no chance of irritating a new captain. Besides, Fearless had a reputation to maintain— and his spine straightened, and a spasm of something very like pain went through him as his new captain rounded the tube's final bend. Her white beret gleamed under the lights, and he felt his face stiffen as he saw the sleek, cream-and-gray shape riding her shoulder. He hadn't known she had a tree cat, and he smothered a fresh spurt of irrational resentment at the sight. Commander Harrington floated easily down the last few meters of tube then spun in midair and caught the final scarlet-hued grab bar that marked the edge of Fearless's internal grab field. She crossed the interface like a gymnast dismounting from the rings to land lightly before him. 
and McKeon's sense of personal injury grew perversely stronger as he realized how little justice the photo in her personnel jacket had done her. Her triangular face had looked stern and forbidding, almost cold in the file imagery, especially framed in the dark fuzz of her close-cropped hair. But the pictures had lied. They hadn't captured the life and vitality, the sharp-edged attractiveness. No one would ever call Commander Harrington pretty, he thought, but she had something far more important. Those clean-cut, strong features and huge dark brown eyes, exotically angular and sparkling with barely restrained delight, despite her formal expression, discounted such ephemeral concepts as pretty. She was herself, unique, impossible to confuse with anyone else, and that only made it worse. McKeon met her scrutiny with a stolid expression and fought to suppress his confused, bitter resentment. He saluted sharply. The side party came to attention, and the bosun's calls shrilled. All activity stilled around the entry port, and her hand came up in an answering salute. Permission to come aboard? Her voice was a cool, clear soprano, surprisingly light in a woman her size, for she easily matched McKeon's own 180 centimeters. Permission granted, he replied. It was a formality, but a very real one. Until she officially assumed command, Harrington was no more than a visitor aboard McKeon's ship. Thank you, she said, and stepped aboard as he stood back to clear the hatch. He watched her chocolate-dark eyes sweep over the entry port and side party and wondered what she must be thinking. Her sculpted face made an excellent mask for her emotions, except for those glowing eyes, he thought sourly, and he hoped his own did the same. It wasn't really fair of him to resent her. A light cruiser simply wasn't a lieutenant commander's billet, but Harrington was almost five years, over eighty years, younger than he. Not only was she a full commander, not only did the breast of her tunic bear the embroidered gold star denoting a previous hyper-capable command, but she looked young enough to be his daughter. Well, no, not that young, perhaps, but she could have been his niece. Of course, she was second-generation prolong. He checked the open portion of her record closely enough to know that, and the anti-aging treatment seemed to be proving even more effective for second- and third-generation recipients. Other parts of her record, like her penchant for unorthodox tactical maneuvers and the CGM and Monarch's thanks she'd earned as saving lives when HMS Manticore's forward power room exploded, soothed his resentment a bit. But neither they, nor knowing why she seemed so youthful, could lessen the emotional impact of finding the slot he'd longed for so hopelessly, filled by an officer who not only oozed the effortless magnetism he'd always envied in others, but also looked as if she'd graduated from the academy last year. Nor did the bright, unwavering regard the tree cat bent upon him make him feel any better. Harrington completed her inspection of the side party without comment, then turned back to him, and he smothered his resentment and turned to the next formalized step of his responsibilities. May I escort you to the bridge, ma'am? he asked, and she nodded. Thank you, Commander, she murmured, and he led the way up ship. Honor stepped out of the bridge lift and looked around at what was about to become her personal domain. 
The signs of a frenzied refit were evident, and puzzlement stirred afresh as she noted the chaos of tools and parts strewn across her tactical section. Nothing else even seemed disturbed. Darn it, what hadn't Admiral Corvosier told her about her ship? But that was for the future. For now, she had other things to attend to, and she crossed to the captain's chair, surrounded by its nest of displays and readouts at the center of the bridge. Most of the displays were retracted into their storage positions, and she rested her hand for a moment on the panel concealing the tactical repeater display. She didn't sit down. By long tradition, that chair was barred to any captain before she'd read herself aboard. But she took her place beside it and coaxed Nimitz off her shoulder and into its far arm, out of the intercom pickups field. Then she set aside her briefcase, pressed a stud on the near arm, and listened to the clear musical chime resounding through the ship. All activity aboard Fearless stopped. Even the handful of visiting civilian techs slid out from under the consoles they were rewiring or crawled up out of the bowels of power rooms and shunting circuits as the all-hand signal sounded. Bulkhead intercom screens flicked to life with Honor's face, and she felt hundreds of eyes as they noted the distinctive white beret and sharpened to catch their first sight of the captain, into whose keeping the Lords of Admiralty, in their infinite wisdom, had committed their lives. She reached into her tunic, and paper crackled, whispering from every speaker, as she broke the seals and unfolded her orders. From Admiral Sir Lucian Cortez, Fifth Space Lord, Royal Manticoran Navy, she read in her crisp, cool voice. To Commander Honor Harrington, Royal Manticoran Navy, 35th day, 4th month, year 280 after landing. Madam, you are hereby directed and required to proceed aboard Her Majesty's starship Fearless, CL-56, there to take upon yourself the duties and responsibilities of commanding officer in the service of the Crown. Fail not in this charge at your peril. By order of Admiral Sir Edward Janicek, First Lord of Admiralty, Royal Manticoran Navy, for Her Majesty the Queen. She fell silent and refolded her orders without even glancing at the pickup. For almost five T-centuries, those formal phrases had marked the transfer of command aboard the ships of the Manticoran Navy. They were brief and stilted, but by the simple act of reading them aloud, she had placed her crew under her authority, bound them to obey her upon pain of death. The vast majority of them knew nothing at all about her, and she knew equally little about them. And none of that mattered. They had just become her crew. Their very lives depended upon how well she did her job, and an icicle of awareness sang through her as she finished folding the heavy sheet of paper and turned once more to McKeon. Mr. Exec, she said formally, I assume command. Captain, he replied with equal formality, you have command. Thank you. She glanced at the duty quartermaster, reading his nameplate from across the bridge. Make a note in the log, please, Chief Braun, she said, and turned back to the pickup and her watching crew. I won't take up your time with any formal speeches, people. We have too much to do and too little time to do it in as it stands. Carry on. She touched the stud again. The intercom screens went blank, 
and she lowered herself into the comfortable contoured chair. Her chair now. Nimit swarmed back onto her shoulder with a slightly aggrieved flip of his tail, and she gestured for McKeon to join her. The tall, heavy-set exec crossed the bridge to her while the bustle of work resumed about them. His gray eyes met hers with, she thought, perhaps just an edge of discomfort or challenge. The thought surprised her, but he held out his hand in the traditional welcome to a new captain, and his deep voice was level. Welcome aboard, ma'am, he said. I'm afraid things are a bit of a mess just now, but we're pretty close to on schedule, and the dockmasters promised me two more work crews starting next watch. Good. Honor returned his handshake, then stood and walked toward the gutted fire control section with him. I have to admit to a certain amount of puzzlement, though, Mr. McKeon. Admiral Corvosier warned me we were due for a major refit, but he didn't mention any of this. She nodded at the open panels and unraveled circuit runs. I'm afraid we didn't have much choice, ma'am. We could have handled the energy torpedoes with software changes, but the Gravlance is basically an engineering system. Tying it into fire control requires direct hardware links to the main tactical system. Gravlance? Honor didn't raise her voice, but McKeon heard the surprise under its cool surface, and it was his turn to raise an eyebrow. Yes, ma'am. He paused. Didn't anyone mention that to you? No, they didn't. Honor's lips thinned in what might charitably have been called a smile, and she folded her hands deliberately behind her. How much broadside armament did it cost us? she asked after a moment. All four grazer mounts, McKeon replied, and watched her shoulders tighten slightly. I see. And you mentioned energy torpedoes, I believe? Yes, ma'am. The yard's replaced, is replacing, rather, all but two broadside missile tubes with them. All but two? The question was sharper this time, and McKeon hit an edge of bitter amusement. No wonder she sounded upset, if they hadn't even warned her. He'd certainly been upset when he found out what was planned. Yes, ma'am. I see, she repeated, and inhaled. Very well, exec. What does that leave us? We still have the 30-centimeter laser mounts, two in each broadside, plus the missile launchers. After refit, we'll have the grav lance and 14 torpedo generators as well, and the chase armament is unchanged, two missile tubes and the 60-centimeter spinal laser. He watched her closely, and she didn't quite wince, which, he reflected, spoke well for her self-control. Energy torpedoes were quick-firing, destructive, very difficult for point defense to stop, and completely ineffectual against a target protected by a military-grade sidewall. That, obviously, was the reason for the Gravlands. Yet if a Gravlands could, usually, burn out its target sidewall generators, it was slow-firing and had a very short maximum effect range. But if Captain Harrington was aware of that, she allowed no trace of it to color her voice. I see, she said yet again, and gave her head a little toss. Very well, Mr. McKeon. I'm sure I've taken you away from something more useful than talking to me. Have my things been stowed? Yes, ma'am. Your steward saw to it. In that case, I'll be in my quarters examining the ship's books if you need me. I'd like to invite the officers to dine with me this evening. 
I see no point in letting introductions interfere with their duties now. She paused as if reaching for another thought, then looked back at him. Before then, I'll want to tour the ship and observe the work in progress. Will it be convenient for you to accompany me at 1400? Of course, Captain. Thank you. I'll see you then. She nodded and left the bridge without a backward glance. Chapter 2 Honor Harrington sighed, leaned back from the terminal, and pinched the bridge of her nose. No wonder Admiral Corvosier had been so vague about the refit. Her old mentor knew her entirely too well. He'd known exactly how she would have reacted if he told her the truth, and he wasn't about to let her blow her first cruiser command in a fit of temper. She shook herself and rose to stretch, and Nimitz roused to look her way. He started to slither down from the padded rest her new steward had rigged at her request, but she waved him back with a soft sound which told him she had to think. He cocked his head a moment, then bleaked quietly at her and settled back down. She took a quick turn about her cabin. That was one nice thing about Fearless. At less than 90,000 tons, she might be small by modern standards, but the captain's quarters were downright spacious compared to Hawkwing's. Still small and cramped in planet-side eyes, perhaps, but Honor hadn't applied planetary standards to her living space in years. She even had her own dining compartment, large enough to seat all of her officers for formal occasions, and that was luxury indeed aboard a warship. Not that spaciousness made her feel any better about the ghastly mutilation Hephaestus was wreaking upon her lovely ship. She paused to adjust the golden plaque on the bulkhead by her desk. There was a fingerprint on the polished alloy, and she felt a familiar wry self-amusement as she leaned closer to burnish it away with her sleeve. That plaque had accompanied her from ship to ship and planet side and back for twelve and a half years, and she would have felt lost without it. It was her good luck piece, her totem. She rubbed a fingertip gently across the long tapering wing of the sailplane etched into the gold, remembering the day she'd landed to discover she'd set a new academy record, one that still stood for combined altitude, duration, and aerobatics. And she smiled but the smile faded as she glanced through the open internal hatch into the dining compartment and returned to the depressing present. She sighed again. She wasn't looking forward to that dinner. For that matter, she wasn't looking forward to her tour of the ship after what she'd found locked away in her computer. The happiness she'd felt such a short time ago had soured, and what should have been two of the more pleasurable rituals of a change of command looked far less inviting now. She told McKeon she meant to study the ship's books, and so she had. But her main attention had been focused on the refit specs and the detailed instructions she'd found in the captain's secure database. McKeon's description of the alterations was only too accurate, though he hadn't mentioned that in addition to ripping out two-thirds of Fearless's missile tubes, the yard was gutting her magazine space as well. Missile stowage was always a problem particularly for smaller starships like light cruisers and destroyers, because an impeller-drive missile simply had to be big. There were limits to how many you could cram aboard, and since they'd decided to reduce Fearless's tubes, they'd see no reason not to reduce her magazines as well. After all, it had let them cram in four additional energy torpedo launchers. 
she felt her lips trying to curl into a snarl and forced them to smooth as Nimitz chittered a question at her. The tree cat's vocal apparatus was woefully unsuited to forming words. That was no problem with other cats, since they relied so heavily on their ill-understood telepathic sense for communication. But it left many humans prone to underestimate their intelligence. Badly. Honor knew better, and Nimitz was always sensitive to her moods. Indeed, she suspected he knew her better than she knew herself, and she took a moment to scratch the underside of his jaw before she resumed her pacing. It was all quite simple, she thought. She'd fallen into the clutches of horrible Hemphill and her crowd, and now it was up to her to make their stupidity look intelligent. She gritted her teeth. There were two major schools of tactical thought in the RMN. The traditionalists, championed by Admiral Hamish Alexander, and Admiral of the Red Lady, Sonia Hemphill's Jeune École. Alexander, and for that matter, Honor, believed the fundamental tactical truths remained true, regardless of weapon systems, that it was a matter of fitting new weapons into existing conceptual frameworks with due adjustment for the capabilities they conferred. The Jeune École believed weapons determined tactics, and that technology, properly used, rendered historical analysis irrelevant. And, unfortunately, politics had placed horrible Hemphill and her panacea merchants in the ascendant just now. Honor suppressed an uncharacteristic urge to swear viciously. She didn't study politics, she didn't understand politics, and she didn't like politics, but even she grasped the Cromarty government's current dilemma. Confronted by the liberals and progressives' inflexible opposition to big-ticket military budgets and signs the so-called new men were inclining towards temporary alliance with them, Duke Allen had been forced to draw the conservative association into his camp as a counterweight. It was unlikely the conservatives would stay put. Their xenophobic isolationism and protectionism were too fundamentally at odds with the centrist and crown-loyalist perception that open war with the People's Republic of Haven was inevitable. But for now, they were needed, and they charged high for their allegiance. They'd wanted the military ministry, and Duke Allen had been forced to buy them off by naming Sir Edward Janicek First Lord of the Admiralty, the civilian head of Honor's own service under the Minister of War. Janicek had been an admiral in his time, and one with a reputation for toughness and determination. But a more reactionary old xenophobe would be hard to find. He was one of the group who had opposed the annexation of the basilisk terminus of the Manticore Junction, on the grounds that it would antagonize our neighbors. Translated, it would be the first step on the road to foreign adventurism. And that was bad enough. Unpolitical honor might be, but she knew which party she supported. The centrists realized that the Republic of Haven's expansionism must inevitably bring it into conflict with the kingdom, and they were preparing to do something about it. The conservatives wanted to bury their heads in the sand until it all went away, though they were at least willing to support a powerful fleet to safeguard their precious isolation. But the point which most affected Fearless just now was that Hemphill was Janicek's second cousin, and that Janicek personally disliked Admiral Alexander. More, the new First Lord, 
feared the traditionalists' insistence that aggressive expansion like Havens would continue until it was forcibly contained. And, finally, Hemphill was one of the most senior admirals of the Red. Each of the RMN's flag ranks was divided into two divisions on the basis of seniority. The junior half of each rank were admirals of the Red, or Griffin Division, while the senior half were admirals of the Green, or Manticore Division. Simple longevity would eventually move any flag officer from one division to the other, but they could also be promoted over the heads of their fellows, and with her cousin as First Lord, Lady Sonia was poised to move up to the Green, especially if she could justify her tactical theories, all of which, added together, had given horrible Hemphill the clout to butcher Honor's helpless ship. She growled and kicked a stool across the cabin. The satisfaction was purely momentary, and she flung herself back into her chair to glower at her screen. Her command, it seemed, was her reward for graduating first in Admiral Corvosier's advanced tactics class, for Fearless was also Hemphill's secret weapon in the upcoming fleet problem. That explained the security clamped over the refit, which Corvosier had made his excuse for not warning Honor and she didn't doubt that Hemphill was chuckling and rubbing her hands in anticipation. For herself, if Honor had known what was waiting, she darn well would have blown off a couple of percentage points just to avoid it. She rubbed her eyes again, wondering if McKeon already knew about their role in the fleet problem. Probably not. He hadn't been upset enough, given what it was going to do to their efficiency ratings, and, beyond a doubt, to Fearless's reputation. The problem was that, on paper, the whole thing made sense. Gravity sidewalls were the first and primary line of defense for every warship. The impeller drive created a pair of stressed gravity bands above and below a ship. A wedge, open at both ends, though the forward edge was far deeper than the after one. Capable, in theory, of instant acceleration to light speed. Of course, that kind of acceleration would turn any crew to gory goo. Even with modern inertial compensators, the best acceleration any warship could pull under impeller was well under 600 gravities. But it had been a tremendous step forward, and not simply in terms of propulsion. Even today, no known weapon could penetrate the main drive bands of a military-grade impeller wedge, which meant simply powering its impellers protected a ship against any fire from above or below. But that had left the sides of the impeller wedge, for they too were open, until someone invented the gravity sidewall and extended protection to its flanks. The bow and stern aspect still couldn't be closed, even by a sidewall, and the most powerful sidewall ever generated was far weaker than a drive band. Sidewalls could be penetrated, particularly by missiles fitted with penetration aids, but it took a powerful energy weapon at very short range, relatively speaking, to pierce them with any effect, and that limited beams to a range of no more than 400,000 kilometers. It also meant that deep space battles had a nasty tendency to end in tactical draws, however important they might be strategically. When one fleet realized it was in trouble, it simply turned its ships up on their sides, presenting only the impenetrable aspects of its individual unit's impeller wedges, while it endeavored to break off the action. The only counter was a resolute pursuit, 
but that, in turn, exposed the unguarded frontal arcs of the pursuers' wedges, inviting raking fire straight down their throats as they attempted to close. Cruiser actions were more often fought to the finish, but engagements between capital ships all too often had the formalism of some intricate dance in which both sides knew all the steps. The situation had remained unaltered for over six standard centuries, aside from changes in engagement range as beam weapons improved or defensive designers came up with a new wrinkle to make missile penetration more difficult. And Hemphill and her technophiliacs found that intolerable. They believed the grav lance could break the static situation, and they were determined to prove it. In theory, Honor had to concede their point. In theory... Deep inside, she even wished, rather wistfully, that they might be right, for the tactician in her hated the thought of bloody formalistic battles. The proper objective was the enemy's fleet, not simple territory. If his battle squadrons lived to fight another day, one was forced back on a strategy of attrition and blockade, and casualties, ultimately, were far higher in that sort of grinding war. Yet the Jeune École wasn't right. The Gravelance was new, and might indeed someday have the potential Hemphill claimed for it, but it certainly didn't have it yet. With only a very little luck, a direct hit could set up a harmonic fit to burn out any sidewall generator. But it was a cumbersome, slow-firing, mass-intensive weapon, and its maximum range under optimum circumstances was barely a hundred thousand kilometers. And that, she thought gloomily was the critical flaw. To employ the lance, a ship had to close to point-blank range against enemies who would start trying to kill it with missiles at upward of a million kilometers and chime in with energy weapons at four times the lance's own range. It might even make sense aboard a capital ship with a mass to spare for it, but only an idiot or horrible Hemphill would think it made sense aboard a light cruiser. Fearless simply didn't have the defenses to survive hostile fire as she closed, and thanks to the Gravelance, she no longer even had the offensive weapons to reply effectively. Oh, certainly, if she got into Gravelance range, and if the lance did its job, the massive energy torpedo batteries Hemphill had crammed in could tear even a super-dreadnought apart. But only if the lance did its job since energy torpedoes were as effective as so many soft-boiled eggs against an intact sidewall. It was insane, and it was up to Honor to make it work. She glowered at the screen some more, then switched it off in disgust, and sprawled untidily across her bunk. Nimitz stretched and ambled down from his rest to curl up on her stomach, and this time she cooed to him and stroked his fur as he laid his jaw on her breastbone to help her think. She'd considered protesting. After all, tradition gave a captain the authority to question alterations to her command. But Fearless hadn't been her command when the refit was authorized, and the right to question wasn't the same as the right to refuse. Honor knew exactly how Hemphill would react to any protest, and it was too late to undo the damage anyway. Besides, she had her orders— However stupid they were, it was her job to make them work. And that, as they said at the Academy, was that. Even if it hadn't been, Fearless was her ship by God. Whatever Hemphill had done to her, no one was going to crap on Fearless's reputation if Honor could help it.
She forced her muscles to one knot as Nimitz's purr hummed against her. She'd never been able to decide what else he did, but that mysterious extra sense of his had to be at the bottom of it, for she felt her outrage fading into determination and knew darn well it wasn't all her doing. Her mind began to pick and pry at the problem. It was probable, she decided, that she could get away with it at least once, assuming the aggressors hadn't cracked Penpill's security. After all, the idea was so crazy no sane person would expect it. Suppose she arranged to join one of the screening squadrons. That was a logical enough position for a light cruiser, and the big boys would tend to ignore Fearless to concentrate on the opposing capital ships. That might let her slip into Lance range and get off her shot. It would be little better than a suicide run, but that wouldn't bother Hemphill's cronies. They'd consider trading a light cruiser and its crew for an enemy dreadnought or super dreadnought more than equitable, which was one reason Honor hated their so-called tactical doctrine. Yet even if she got away with it once and somehow managed to survive, she'd never get away with it twice, not once the aggressors knew Fearless was out there and what she was armed with. They'd simply burn down every light cruiser they saw, for Hemphill had placed her sledgehammer in too thin an eggshell to survive capital ship fire. On the other hand, succeeding even once would be a major feather in Honor's cap, at least among those who recognized the impossibility of her task. She sighed and closed her eyes, understanding herself entirely too well. She never had learned how to refuse a challenge. If there was a way to bring off horrible Hemphill's gambit, Honor would find it, however much it galled her soul to do it. Chapter 3 General Signal from Flag, ma'am. Preparative Baker Golf 7-Niner. Honor nodded acknowledgement of Lieutenant Webster's report without raising her eyes from her display. She'd expected the signal from the moment Admiral Dorville's aggressors settled on their final approach vector, and Seven-Niner was, in a very real sense, her personal creation. Admiral Hemphill's ops officer probably wouldn't see it that way, but Captain Grimaldi, Hemphill's chief of staff, had realized what Honor was up to and supported her hints and deferential suggestions with surprising subtlety. He'd even given her a grin of approval after the final captain's briefing— which had led Honor into a fundamental re-evaluation of him, despite his position in Horrible Hemphill's camp. Not that it took a mental giant to realize that no conventional approach would let a light cruiser, whatever its armament, survive to reach attack range of a hostile battle fleet. There were only so many options for a commander faced by a normal space action inside the hyperlimit of a star. It was relatively simple to hide even a capital ship, at longer ranges anyway, by simply shutting down her impellers and dropping off the enemy's passive scanners. But the impeller drive wasn't magic. Even at the 500-plus gravities a destroyer or light cruiser could manage, it took time to generate respectable vector changes. So hiding by cutting power was of strictly limited utility. After all, it did no good to hide if the enemy went charging away from you at 50 or 60 percent of light speed and you couldn't hide if you accelerated in pursuit. All of which meant an admiral simply couldn't conceal her maneuvers from an opponent without risking loss of contact. And since hiding was normally pointless, that left only two real options. 
meet the enemy in a head-on brute power clash, or try misdirection by showing him something that wasn't quite what he thought it was. Given Admiral Hemphill's material-oriented prejudices, it had taken all of Honor's persuasiveness to build any misdirection at all into the battle plan. For Lady Sonya believed in massing overwhelming firepower and simply smashing away until something gave, which at least had the virtue of simplicity. Without Grimaldi's support, it was unlikely a lowly commander, even one specially selected to command Hemphill's secret weapon, could have convinced the Admiral. But that was fine with honor. Admiral Dorville knew Hemphill as well as anyone else, and the last thing he'd expect from her was sneakiness. If the defenders could mislead him into misinterpreting what he saw, so much the better. If they couldn't, they lost very little of importance. Only fearless. And so Honor watched the rest of the Defender Task Force moving towards her. In another sixteen minutes, the entire force would overrun her and keep right on going, leaving her single light cruiser alone and lonely, almost in the aggressor's path. Admiral of the Green, Sebastian Dorville, frowned over his own plot aboard the super-dreadnought HMS King Roger, then glanced at the visual display. Visuals were useless for coordinating battles at deep space ranges, but they were certainly spectacular. Dorville's ships were charging ahead at almost 170,000 kilometers per second, just under 0.57 C, and the starfield in the forward screens was noticeably blue-shifted, but King Roger raced along between the inclined roof and floor of her impeller wedge, and the effect of a meter-deep band in which local gravity went from zero to over 97,000 MPS squared grabbed photons like a lake of glue and bent the strongest energy weapon like flimsy wire. Stars seen through a stress band like that red-shifted radically and displaced their images by a considerable margin in direct vision displays though knowing exactly how powerful the gravity field was made it fairly simple for the computers to compensate and put them back where they belonged. But what was possible for the generating warship was impossible for its foes. Civilian impeller drives generated a single stress band in each aspect. Military impeller drives generated a double band and filled the space between them with a sidewall, for good measure. Hostile sensors might be able to analyze the outermost band, but they couldn't get accurate readings on the inner ones, and that was why no one could target something on their far side. Admiral Hemphill's deceleration is holding steady, sir. His chief of staff broke into Dorville's thoughts with a fresh update from Tactical. We should enter missile range in another twenty minutes. What's the latest on her detached squadron? We got a good crosscut on their transmissions about twelve minutes ago, sir. They're way the hell and gone in system. Captain Lewis's completely neutral tone almost shouted his derision for their opponent, and Dorville hit a smile of agreement. Sonya was going to look mighty bad when they got done kicking her posterior clear back to the capital, and that was exactly what was going to happen to her if she tried a stand-up fight without those detached dreadnoughts. She should have gone on running until they could join up, not challenged this soon, but at least their absence explained her course. She was well off a direct heading for the planets she was supposed to be defending for the simple reason that it was the shortest route to the ships she'd forgotten to bring to the dance, and Dorville was sadly tempted to ignore her and go kiting straight for the objective. 
It would be highly satisfying to nuke Manticore without letting Sonya fire a single shot in its defense. But his assigned objective was to capture the capital planet, not just raid it. Besides, no tactician worth his gold braid would pass up the opportunity to crush two-thirds of the enemy's forces in detail, especially in one of the rare cases in which the opposition couldn't disengage without uncovering an objective they must hold. Is our deployment complete? he asked. Yes, sir. The scouts are falling back behind the wall now. Good. Dorville glanced into the huge main tactical tank, double-checking Lewis's report in pure reflex. His capital ships had spread into the traditional wall of battle, stacked both longitudinally and vertically into a formation one ship wide and as tight as their impeller wedges permitted. It wasn't a very maneuverable arrangement, but it allowed the maximum possible broadside fire. And since they could no more shoot out through their impeller bands than an enemy could shoot in through them, it was the only practical way to accomplish that. He checked the chronometer against Tactical's projections again. Seventeen minutes to extreme missile range. The first missiles went out as the range dropped. Not a lot of them. The chances of a hit at this distance were slight. And not even capital ships could pack in an inexhaustible supply of them but enough to keep the other side honest, and enough to give any good liberal or progressive a serious case of the hive's honor thought, watching them go. Each of those projectiles massed just under 75 tons and cost upward of a million manticoran dollars, even without warheads or pen-aids. No one would be fool enough to use weapons that could actually get through and damage their targets but the fleet had steadfastly refused every political pressure to abandon live-fire exercises. Computer simulations were invaluable, and every officer and rating of whatever branch spent long, often grueling hours in the simulators, but actual firings were the only way to be sure the hardware really worked. And, expensive or not, live-fire exercises taught the missile crews things no simulation could. But she had other things to worry about as Admiral Dorville charged towards her. And worry she did, for Honor wasn't precisely the RMN's best mathematician. Despite aptitude tests, which regularly said she ought to be an outstanding number cruncher, her academy performance scores had steadfastly refused to live up to that potential. In point of fact, she'd nearly flunked out of multidimensional math in her third form and while she'd graduated in the top 10% overall, she'd also held the embarrassing distinction of standing 237th out of a class of 241 in mathematics. Her math scores hadn't done much for her own self-confidence at the time, and they'd driven her instructors to distraction. The profs had known she could handle the math. The aptitude test said so. Her tax simulator scores had blown the roof off the curve, which wasn't exactly the mark of a mathematical moron, and her maneuvering scores had been just as high. Her kinesthetic sense was acute. She could solve multi-unit, three-dimensional vector intercepts in her head, as long as she didn't think about what she was doing, and none of that ability had shown up in her applied mathematics grades. The only person it never seemed to have bothered was Admiral Corvosier. Only he'd been Captain Corvosier then and he'd ridden her mercilessly until she came to believe in herself, whatever the grade said. Give her a real-time, real-world maneuver to worry about, and she was fine. 
but even today she was a poor astrogator, and she could worry herself into panic attacks just thinking about math tests, which she knew was the reason for her present carefully hidden jitters. She'd had too much time to worry about today's maneuver. Yet this was hardly a case of hyperspace navigation, she reminded herself firmly. Just four simple little dimensions, something Sir Isaac Newton could have handled, and she probably wouldn't have worried about it if it hadn't come at her cold. When that sort of thing happened, she didn't worry. She simply responded as Admiral Corvosier had trained her to, trusting the abilities she couldn't quite seem to lay her cognitive hands upon and her unbroken string of excellent and superior tactical ratings had confounded even her most dubious academy critics. But in this instance, she'd had plenty of time to worry about it ahead of time, and telling herself, truthfully, that only the aggressor's closing speed made it time-critical hadn't helped tremendously. Still, Lieutenant Venizelis, her tactical officer, had run the numbers five times, and Lieutenant Commander McKeon had double-checked them. And Honor had made herself check McKeon's calculations a dozen times in the privacy of her quarters. Now she watched the chrono counting off the last fleeting seconds and double-checked her engineering displays. Everything on the green. You know, sir, Captain Lewis murmured, there's something a little weird about this. Weird? How so? Dorville asked absently, watching the missile traces streaking toward Hemphill's wall of battle. Their counterfire's mighty light, Lewis said, frowning down at his own displays. And it's scattered pretty wide. Not concentrated. Umph? Dorville craned his neck to glance at Tactical's target projections. And it was his turn to frown. Lewis was right. Sonya was a great believer in concentration of fire. It was one of her few real tactical virtues, in Dorville's opinion, and given her numerical disadvantage, she ought to be pouring it on, hoping for a few lucky kills to decrease the odds. Only she wasn't, and the Admiral's eyebrows drew together in puzzlement. Are you positive about the fix on her detached units? He asked after a moment. That's what I was thinking about myself, sir. I'm certain our fix was solid, but what if the transmitting ship was all alone out there? You think she could be leading us into a trap? I don't know. Dorville rubbed his jaw and frowned harder. It wouldn't be like her, but Grimaldi might just have put her up to something along those lines. Bit risky if he did, though. She'd have to have them free-falling on the same base vector to pull it off. And we've got the edge in force levels, even if her entire force were concentrated. He wrinkled his forehead, then sighed. Pass the word to Tactical to prepare for a radical course change, just in case. Yes, sir. A single data code blinked angry scarlet amid the massive aggressor formation in Honor's display. And she grinned. She didn't know if Admiral Dorville's spies, unofficial and strictly against the rules, of course, had penetrated the security screen around Fearless. But Admiral Hemphill's spies had penetrated his own security. Not very deeply, but far enough to ID his flagship. That was one of the great potential weaknesses in any fleet maneuver. Each side had complete files on the electronic signatures of the other side's units. The chrono sped downward, and she raised her head to glance at McKeon and Lieutenant Venizelis. All right, gentlemen, she said. Sir, we've got a new bogey bearing... 
Captain Lewis's frantic warning was far too late, and the range was far too short to do anything about it. Admiral Dorville had barely begun to turn towards him when a crimson light glared on King Roger's main status board, and damage alarms screamed as the vastly understrength Gravlands smashed into the Super Dreadnought's port sidewall. It was far too weak to inflict actual generator damage, but the computers noted it and obediently flashed their failure warning, just as an incredible salvo of equally understrength energy torpedoes exploded against the theoretically non-existent sidewall. The Admiral jerked upright in his command chair, while the visual display flickered and glared with the energy torpedo's fury. Then the display went blank, and his strangled, incredulous curse echoed across the hushed flag bridge as every weapon and propulsive system shut down. Direct hit, ma'am, Venezuela screamed, and Honor permitted herself a fierce grin of triumph as the aggressor flagship went ballistic. Other ships peeled out of formation to maintain safe separation, but King Roger was dead, locked down by her own computers to simulate her total destruction at the hands of a lowly light cruiser. It was almost worth being Horrible Hemphill's hand-picked hatchet woman just to see it. But there was still the little matter of Fearless's own survival. Bring the wedge up now! Honor's soprano was a bit higher than usual, if far calmer than her tack officer's voice, and engineering's response was instantaneous. Lieutenant Commander Santos had been standing by for over an hour. Now she closed the final circuit, and Fearless's impeller wedge sprang to life. Helm, execute Sierra 5. Sierra 5, I, the helmsman replied, and Fearless rolled madly on her gyros and attitude thrusters. She flipped up on her side, relative to the aggressor wall of battle, interposing her belly impeller bands just as the first aggressor energy weapons began to fire. Incredulous fire control officers poured laser and grazer fire at the tiny target, which had suddenly materialized on their displays. But they were too late. The impeller bands bent and splattered their fire harmlessly, and Honor felt a huge smile transform her strong features. All right, Chief Killian. She allowed herself an airy gesture at the forward visual display. That away! Full military power! Yes, ma'am, the helmsman replied with an equally huge grin, and HMS Fearless leapt to an instant acceleration of 503 standard gravities. Fifty years of self-discipline allowed Admiral Dorville to stop cursing as the computers permitted his command chair's tactical display to come back up. His comm systems were still locked, preventing him from doing anything about it, but at least he could see what was happening. Not that it made him feel any better. The light cruiser that had killed his flagship with a single broadside held its course, speeding with ever-mounting velocity on a direct reciprocal of his own fleet's vector. Its course took it through the optimum firing arc of his entire wall, but its impeller bands laughed at his capital ship's best efforts, and not even his light units had a hope in hell of catching it. They could never dump enough velocity to overhaul, and he could almost hear its captain's jubilant raspberry as he sped towards safety. You were right, George, he told Lewis, fighting hard to keep his voice normal. Sonia was up to something. Yes, sir, Lewis said quietly. He rose from his own command chair to stand at Dorville's shoulder and watch the only operational tactical display on the bridge. 
And there's the rest of it, he sighed, and Dorville winced as his chief of staff gestured at Hemphill's main body. The defender wall of battle was changing its vector. It went from partial to maximum deceleration, and even as it did, the entire formation shifted. Its new course cut sharply in towards the aggressor task forces, and the range raced downward as Sonia's formation slowed. The separation was still too great for her to achieve the classic ideal, and cross his T, firing her full broadsides straight into his teeth, while only his leading unit's bow weapons could reply. But the obviously pre-planned maneuver, coupled with the command confusion created by King Roger's destruction, was enough to let her leading units curl in around his own. The defender's broadsides were suddenly ripping down his wall's throat, and if the angle remained acute, it was still sufficient to send missiles racing in through the wide-open frontal arcs of his impeller wedges. Point defense was stopping a lot of them, but not enough, and bright vicious battle damage codes appeared beside the light dots of his lead units as long-range beam fire ripped at those delicious, unprotected targets as well.